Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. I'm joined as always by Martin. Good morning, Martin. Morning, Alex. How are you today? Uh, very good, thank you. It's early for me, but um, I'm sure this will wake me up ready for the day. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, yeah, so today on the podcast, we're talking about uh, the first UK electric commuter flight. Uh, we also have in interview Christopher Dungey of the University of Strathclyde. Uh, and then finally, for our tech spot, we're going to talk to Armand Lemons, who is uh, our enterprise cybersecurity expert. So lots to cover today. Yeah, lots of diversity. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, the first one is uh, this thing that's come up. We are, we are part of a global company, but both you and I are based in Exeter. So I was pretty excited to see a local news piece, which is Exeter Airport is going to be the first UK airport to have uh, an electric commuter flight. Yes, which is uh, yeah, very exciting news on two fronts, really, because, um, you know, Exeter Airport has uh, been through it recently um, with Flybe uh, collapsing and things like this. Yeah. And the future of Exeter Airport being, I guess, slightly questioned as a part of that. And I don't think we quite know necessarily how that will happen what will be the consequence of that post covid but um mm. i mean from our point of view it's a great little airport to fly from so <laughs> i love it yeah um and many people commute to london through the airport so if you're there at, um early in the morning um you uh, you see all of these regular people um they do it is sort of, it's a classic commuter airport, hey? They do some international as well. Yeah. But there's lots of, I've flown from there up to Scotland and, um, yeah. Manchester and things like this, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's so from that point of view, locally, um, it, it's, it's great news to see a level of in, investment and uh, basically investment in future flight as well as part of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, all kinds of different um, reasons to have a look at this type of, or be interested in this news from our point of view, anyway. Yeah. So this is this is the two zero project, which is a, a a neat, somewhat little backronym of towards zero emissions in regional aircraft operations. Mm -hmm. Bit of a mouthful, but yeah, they're using. I think um, it's an American company's plane, Ampere. I believe they've already flown one commuter flight. I think in Hawaii over there, um, but this is going to be the UK's first go at it. And we have uh, this plane is going to be a retrofitted. I love the name, an Echo Eco Otter SX. <laughs> There's lots of otter references down in Exeter, isn't there? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we love an otter. But yeah, the interesting thing that caught my eye on this one was the hybrid electric um, aircraft technology, and uh, obviously we're very used to hybrid cars and that kind of concept. There. But this one particularly, um, you know, I, I, I was expecting to read the article and see more around, you know, hydrogen fuel cells or these types of things, things that we haven't really talked about on the podcast. I mean, we've talked mm -hmm. about some battery technology and we've talked about the uh, supercapacitors as well, um, which I did notice that Lamborghini just launched a car using a supercapacitor. Um, oh. Yeah, that was on... Uh, I think it was on this the first series of or first program of Top Gear, um, and it's for exactly that you know that instant charge, instant boost type of massive amounts of power yeah, straight very, away, very quickly, but not for a very long time. You know, which is you know, ideal for a, 
Lamborghini. But mm-hmm. <laughs> so Lamborghini is calling it a hybrid car, even though it's really just a kind of super capacitor booster. But, mm. uh, yeah, so this is a hybrid um, aircraft technology, um, which is using um, battery power to mm. supplement the um, the power um, going to the engines and things like this. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, obviously, maybe this is a step on the road. And as the program talked about, 2-0, um, maybe we're not at the full um, hydrogen fuel cell level or something like this at the moment. But, um, you know, every step in the journey, really, to see a, an electric-based um, aircraft is quite exciting. Yeah, I think from what I've read, it's uh, it's the idea of doing better and then doing it best. So initially, it's yeah hybrid, but I know they've got plans to go full electric at some point. But yeah, I guess looking at some of the statistics, they think even this hybrid approach can cut emissions as much as seventy percent. Yeah, and as we know, yeah, aircrafts they're not the bulk of um, carbon emissions, but they are very high there. And every time you take a flight, that's that's a big chunk of carbon being put out into the world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, any offset you can do on that with these things, I think it's it's incredible because you can imagine a car. It's not too difficult. You're on wheels. You're on the ground. You're not fighting gravity too much. But I think about the amount of power it must take to lift a battery. I guess we just didn't have the technology to make anything light enough or streamlined enough 15 years ago that we do now. Yeah, and there's also a fair bit of statistics looking at those kind of short short hop flights compared with, you know, medium hop flights and what's the most mm. because of that, because of the takeoff, you know, the amount of power required to take off. Um, so trying to find that optimum distance uh, for, for these type of air- aircraft is one thing. Um, and the other one is where, you, where do you charge them from, um, you know, Extra does have some level of solar panel. If you're really talking about, you know, making it as zero carbon as possible, you really got to be talking of, of um, those kind of power generation systems. So, mm-hmm. in the article, they talk about uh, actually these aircraft will be based uh, um, in Cornwall, Newquay Airport, which also flies to various places, um, but it has an adjacent um, solar panel farm. Ah. So that allows them to tap into that system, obviously, and um, whether that's enough and what the, uh, the the statistics on that are is what is one thing, because obviously that solar farm currently feeds into the grid. So um, this would be an additional load on that. But there's probably to do with losses um, and utilising the power when you can, because um, obviously one of the problem with renewables is the storage aspect of renewable power. So, yeah, it does make you wonder whether, you know, Exeter needs to have a, an adjacent um, solar panel farm, ultimately, for these types yeah, of and projects. As you say, I mean, all of these efforts, they sort of, they have to go hand in hand with other efforts, because it's all well and good having a an electric plane. But if it's being fueled by a, cow, a coal power plant, that's, um, yeah, shooting yourself in the foot, really. Yeah, exactly. And that's... Uh, some of the thing we'll touch on a little bit with the hydrogen fuel cell and um, where do you get the hydrogen from is uh, mm. the problems and how do you store it most safely um i guess with planes um they're kind of slightly used to carrying large amounts of fuel um and therefore maybe storing hydrogen is not such an issue but you still have to generate it from somewhere 
You do. Um, I know there was, uh, we looked at the Bill Gates book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, and there were some ideas for, yeah, clean hydrogen production, but I think they're new at best, if not near future technologies, um, that we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So coming back to a little bit about the plane, just in case uh, people are interested. Um, so the demonstrator was um, a 19-seater, because that's obviously one thing, isn't it? When you think of a plane, how many people can it carry? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, the demonstrators are 19-seater. So once again, there's some um, um, limitation there on, I guess, the size of number of passengers and those types of things. Um, and it's powered by one, or takes one megawatt of power. Um, it doesn't go too much into the detail on that, but you can see this is this is uh, we're in we're in just over prototype territory here with these types mm. of technology, um, uh, and obviously, as we see, once you put some investment and attention into a particular problem, we have a kind of generally a a very incremental growth on the. Um, size and power and efficiency of these things once there's a bit of attention on it so you can see that really moving forward and with some of the um the the research funding on the two zero um program from the industrial strategy fund you can see very much that um this will continue to grow so the current program runs through to may 2022 mm -hmm. um, so yeah it'd be interesting to see how that evolves it's a quick development cycle as well. Yeah, it seems like quite a short period, but I guess, um, yeah, you can get a lot done in that time as well. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a combination of those kind of technologies, isn't it? So, yeah, they've got mm -hmm. various consortium partners, including Rolls-Royce Electric, um, Nottingham University, um, obviously... Logan Air's in there as well, yeah. Yeah, and the airports of Exeter, Devon and Cornwall. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and the Southwest LEP, as well so um yeah it's interesting to see the various different partners involved with it and this will be one of several innovations no doubt in this area yeah fingers crossed we see more all right uh good stuff i think maybe it's time we jump into our interview with chris dungy of the university of strathclyde So for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Professor Chris Dungy of uh, University of Strathclyde. Uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Chris, and tell us a bit about your past, that'd be great. Yeah, okay, Alex, thank you very much. Yes, um, I'm, I'm Professor Chris Dungy, the Research Director of the National Manufacturing Institute of Scotland. Uh, thank you for having me today on your podcast. Um, thank you. Now, we, we were chatting just before. Yeah. I understand you haven't actually quite made it to Strathclyde yet. Yeah, sure. It's, it's all been a, well, I don't need to highlight what a tumultuous 12, 13, 14 months now, is it? It's getting on, uh, as it were. But um, I started at MMIS uh, around about mid-February last year. So I spent several weeks in the office before it closed down. And then we've worked remotely ever since, quite effectively, mm. actually, uh, since that moment. But um, as I was just chatting with Martin beforehand, you know, what, what does the new working world look like as we emerge out of this pandemic? That would be fascinating to uh, kind of understand that and uh, develop appropriate practices within MS, of course. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell us a bit, Chris, obviously we've been um, working together for a little while yet, but it's always interesting to find out a bit about people's 
past um, and we often ask you know what kind of university they went to and often people have done a degree in a completely different subject to what we think they were doing it and um, so yeah what's what's your uh, what's your educational history before yeah um, so in terms of my background Martin I actually uh, went to the University of Birmingham many many years ago now unfortunately too many years to uh, to kind of count as it were but I, I did a four-year master's engineering degree in materials engineering. Um, so that, that's kind of my background. I did many placements as well within the kind of GKN group, particularly right. looking at the um, automotive division and, and the, what was the defense division uh, division as well. So I had many kind of placements within that context. And from there on in, I, I, I stayed at the University of Birmingham and did a, a joint funded PhD with Rolls-Royce it was part of the Rolls-Royce University Technology Center at the time, and it was focused on um, advanced manufacturing capability, particularly the friction welding processes uh -huh. uh, and linear friction welding, which is a derivative of, of solid state welding, and very much uh, developing that capability to deploy on uh, uh, engine programs going forward, particularly welding together or fabricating together blades and discs to create BLISC. Based products. Uh, post my PhD, Martin, do you want me to go on a bit more career? Well, no, I was just going to ask you a little bit yeah, about the material science side of things because um, what does that what does that entail when you when you talk about material science? Is it more the kind of physics or chemistry of it, or a combination of the two? Not necessarily the manufacturing of it, I'm assuming. Yeah, sure. Well, the attraction of the the course um, is actually it's it's a hybrid or synergy of all those kind of subject areas you talked about so very much physics chemistry based but very much also focused on kind of broader aspects of manufacturing materials and how you can exploit materials and for the benefit of you know advanced products um etc so it is very much a hybrid type approach very practical very lab based uh so it kept kept you um on your toes as it were from that point of view incorporating many different laboratory type setups looking at welding for instance um, of a high intensity high intensity fabrication techniques in fact one of my earliest research projects in the late 1990s martin was on what was called selective laser sintering which was a very early days um, additive manufacturing technology and i do have fond memories working in the irc within the university of birmingham on a sinter station 2000 which is a uh, absolutely high tech at the at that um, period of time. And I did think at the, the moment when we were building these silicon carbide 3D printed structures, where will this all end up, you know, in terms of <laughs> technology? So, uh, yeah, I was quite excited actually to be part of that really early wave of additive manufacturing going on in the UK back in the late 1990s. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? How, it's, uh, how it is developing, but it just shows you, you know, some of these things about labels, aren't they? One thing is called additive manufacturing one day is a sintering or another day, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was called complex 3D welding in its early days, additive manufacturing. Uh, but don't, don't mention welding with additive. People get upset, welding. I think, is the uh, conclusion of the <laughs> Welding has, uh, yeah, got a particular connotations, I guess. So what is it? What, did, what was it about materials that fascinated you? Or was it more of a, as most people, I guess, you kind of, fall into a subject and you follow it or was there a real kind of um passion behind uh, 
Yeah, I'd, I'd always had a passion for engineering and science, and because it was a more practical-based degree, at a very good university, of course, it, it was kind of um, ticked all the boxes for me. And also another component here was I did appreciate quite early on in my career that, you know, it's a vital area to get into and the um, demand was growing and the people were exiting that environment, as it were, quite rapidly, um, you know, through retirement. So I did think to myself quite cannily at a very young age, it might be a good place to get into because there's always going to be opportunity to uh, develop <laughs> your career, as it were. So you know, it was a bit of a passion for the subject area, but also an eye on the future in terms of employability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's, what, what, what's next then? We'll see. Uh, what was the next step after, I guess, so PhD? I, I did, um, as part of my PhD, obviously, as I mentioned, was working on friction welding with Rolls-Royce. That gave me a natural platform to join the Rolls-Royce in itself. So I was based in Derby hmm. and ultimately became the team leader of the inertia friction welding capability area which was quite exciting so it was a real amazing opportunity really early on in my career to get behind a state-of-the-art manufacturing capability or technology and looking at how we could exploit that capability with new material systems that were being developed at Rolls-Royce to to make state-of-the-art friction welded joints particularly for the Trent 900 1000 and XWB programs so there were substantial investments by the organization in fact they, they built a a facility up near annesley mansfield area focused on blisk welding and as part of that they had they housed the state-of-the-art inertia friction welding capability uh, and I, I must add you know the investment there was in the tens of millions of dollars kind of range particularly the welding capability it probably does it a disservice just calling it you know just some welding capability these machines are cathedral type engineering scale to to impart the energy required to generate the high integrity high performance joints demanded by the the aero engine product so uh, it was a very exciting part of my early career to be honest to yeah. get involved with something that had such great momentum and, and priority within the business because they were desperate to get it on air the uh, aero engine certain airframes as it were and um yeah it's really really good way to blend your kind of academic -y background um, within that real manufacturing environment very early on within your career. Yeah, and then you end up back in slightly a blend of the two really, isn't it? With the, with the time you spent or where, where we met really, which is at the TWI through, through um, various research projects, I guess blending that research and with the practical world of actually delivering um, a level of capability within that. I, I don't know if that was your next step, but um. Well, well it, it, I had um. I, I then joined the Welding Institute TWI after Rolls Royce, but I, I was then seconded out my own request, as it were, to go and manage the high integrity fabrication team at, at MTC, the Manufacturing Technology Centre in Coventry. Yes. And that, and that was brilliant because it was it was early days of the organisation. I do remember being in a porter cabin on the um, before the buildings went up. Uh, I think to myself, along there with several colleagues looking out on a very bleak, windswept Anstey Park, thinking, what have we done, as it were. But uh, it was um, unfounded, as it were, in terms of those concerns. It was the building that was created, the capability, the people I was involved with. It was an absolute privilege um, to help establish, set up, and kind of be part of that initial team, as it were, to get it going. So I'm very fond of that, my time at MTC. He's met some great people, still very much um, 
connected into those, particularly with my current role. Um, but within that setup there, this is where we really did a, a, real, a real deep dive, real focus for manufacturing and, and a broad remit of kind of manufacturing capabilities and technologies uh, as part of the high value manufacturing catapult network, which we were there at the beginning. So it was a really, really exciting, highly dynamic kind of time in my career and, and environment I was working in. Yeah, and and it kind of a sort of question that just come to my mind really, which was, you've kind of got the uh, the commercial world, if you like, with the Rolls Royce. You've got the academic world, um, and the the research technology centres are really trying to bridge that gap. But do you see, without them being there, you know, it's still functioning in in that strange kind of world? Is like. Yes, we can see the, uh, the the valley of death, as it's referred to, about how do you take uh, academic research and bring it into industry. But you're right in that centre, aren't you, with the RTOs? And do, do you do you get that feel of real uh, real achievement when you see that kind of technology being brought through? And have you got examples that really um, show how the RTOs really operate in that world? Yes, it's a great question, Martin, in terms of the, the RTO landscape and the opportunities to engage and actually benefit from, from interacting with them. I mean, one of the core remits here really is to showcase kind of state-of-the-art technologies on behalf of industry, but kind of de-risk and demystify that environment. So, so some good examples actually coming back to the friction welding, given Rolls-Royce first-hand example of how that capability could be taken further with advancements such as um, MTC investing significantly in rotary friction welding capability with state-of-the-art control, bringing it more into the kind of the digital world from a purely mechanical type of uh, system to now that's one that's got very advanced control systems, algorithms embedded to enable precision during manufacturing. So what we did there was demonstrate a series of feasibility projects ultimately they were taken forward looking at um, length control angular control of components during welding or, or solid state joining as it as it was called and before that you couldn't actually time or stop the part so what we developed on the capability was the control algorithms in combination with the kind of actuation systems as it were to stop within precision so what that enabled you to do, for example, working with other clients, um, is look at modular build using this high integrity process. So looking at crankshaft modular build concepts. Uh, so going from instead of single shot forgings, which there aren't many forging houses on the planet, to actually having a modularized build that then suddenly opened up a, a massive supply chain, and also design freedoms, looking at advanced materials in certain discrete areas that you could value engineer into the components. So that so really, you know, it had a pivotal role there in that one particular example at showcasing what could come next and how your business could really benefit from um, kind of developing and deploying that kind of capability. Yeah, and, and from a, say, from a Rolls-Royce standpoint, that, that they wouldn't necessarily want to get involved at that stage in the research, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they get involved of kind of high level support, um, but they very much look to HVMC to undertake that more higher risk 
um, high reward type stuff in the first instance, just to show what the art of the possible is. Obviously, once it was deemed um, successful and feasible, I guess the, the real, you know, the, the key word there is that gave, then gave them confidence to go off and pursue this in terms of ultimately putting it into a product. And other organisations we dealt with, of course, have pursued that kind of route. So that that's that was kind of the pivotal role, really, for HVMC, looking at bringing out on board advanced capability that in its own right would be deemed slightly unknown, maybe high risk, high cost to an industrial partner that would may bring it in purely on its own right. But we, we were that platform and we are that platform, that conduit to kind of, like I said, de-risk those kind of aspects and showcase what can, what's the art, the possible, what can be done. But mm. we're very much the eye on exploiting it, exploiting the technology and making sure businesses can actually um, benefit from what's being developed within that network. Yeah, and also, like I think you, you you touched on as well about expanding supply chains as well as a part of that, and um, not just you know how how much benefit you can get from research is not just an, a one to one relationship between that and necessarily your your um, your primes within a supply chain. It's also cool. it can affect the tier one and tier twos of the supply chain as well. Yeah, and also the machine builders, mm. you know, helping them to evolve their product so they'd have something that was um you know better fit for service for the oems or the the tier ones that would actually bring this capability in-house so it, it was a very good synergistic kind of partnership with you know the oems would have an in, uh, overarching intent or, or, or objective and the machine builders would kind of feel that yeah we need to go in that direction but how do we actually do this and then that's when the hvmc kind of construct would come in and help in that mid ground, you know, bringing it all together, acting as a bit of the conduit to help develop not just the the product aspect, but the machine. The machines are absolutely critical here. That if we can't, as you know, Martin, you know, in terms of the journey we're going on with digitalization of traditional manufacturing capability, that that the machine builders and the evolution of manufacturing capability is absolutely fundamental to to kind of what comes next in this space. Yeah, and the data, as you said, the data side of that. I guess is another part to the supply chain from that point of view, isn't it? So yeah, very much um, so. the digital offerings that come along with these types of things, whether that's the AI, you know, looking at getting to zero well defects or whatever it is, or um, it, it's another layer to that that value chain that we're creating. Um, um, so yeah, so on with the current role, Chris. So to, we're almost up to date here. <laughs> almost up to date, yeah. <laughs> Well, so, uh, I, I did. I did. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about reflecting on this earlier on. I've, I've, I've been associated with many organisations before I joined the National Manufacturing Institute of Scotland. I, I helped establish a digital uh, manufacturing innovation centre with Lancaster University and the Welding Institute, and that's where we really had quite a lot of dialogue, Martin, particularly mm. an interaction, of course, on looking at traditional manufacturing capability and, and how do we now evolve this in this data-rich world that we're rapidly immersing ourselves within and how do we improve that capability accordingly ultimately for productivity quality gains and improvements um, for organizations so i was there a number of years helped i founded that center and and obviously uh, uh, got it up and running it was very successful and then that led me on to my current role which is, is as the research director for the National Manufacturing Institute of Scotland. Uh, and MMIS is a um, 
one of the seven uh, kind of facilities as part of the high value manufacturing catapult network very much working closely and in synergy with those organizations across the uk but emnis is the only entity in scotland um, and it's got also got substantial backing from the scottish government um, as well so it, it is it does play a very much a pivotal role in that the manufacturing and the advanced manufacturing innovation ecosystem convening really a multitude of actors from government industry academia innovation centers together to translate um, research as it were for the benefit of the scottish uk economy to create high value jobs and, and really to create a a resilient high value manufacturing kind of environment within scotland and, and beyond of course in, in terms of my role martin as the director i'm very privileged to um be in a position to to very much lead and drive strategy technology and the research agenda on behalf of the institute on behalf of scotland of course and within the hvmc uh, and also have a number of roles within that area, particularly looking at uh, the digital context. So we're, we're just broken ground on a state of the art digital factory, which is a circa 50 million pound investment from the Scottish government and the high value manufacturing catapult network. Very much looking at the digital manufacturing context, looking in building and establishing state of the art digital capabilities from the manufacturing layer all the way through the kind of i call it the isa 95 framework looking across the whole enterprise and out very much out into the value chain as well so we're we're developing that construct building the facilities building the digital architecture and infrastructure and deploying substantial levels of project activity across all of that kind of um, framework as it were yeah so what's what was the uh, what's the motivation to um to make that move i mean like you said you've been involved with many things setting up the uh the the um digital hub if you like at, at lancaster university this seems like a um a, a an exciting move but what what was the thing that really attracted you to it yeah it's multi multifaceted really in terms of motivation there i mean just the scale and the ambition uh, of the challenge and the focus around digital really got me excited it kind of complemented and was a step up from where I currently was in terms of that digital ambition. So this is really, you know, kind of honed in substantial resource investments in that space. Um, and, and the prestige working at a national level focused on the, within manufacturing. I really did. I do feel that we can make a real impact in this space. Mm. And particularly working in collaboration, making creating something quite innovative world leading i know they used quite a lot those words but genuinely when you look at the ecosystem we're now developing and the focus and the vision we've got for the the digital factory in particular i do genuinely believe that something transformational will come from this on many levels from quick win interventions with industry all the way through to really advanced concepts around autonomous manufacturing kabotic based um you know engineering humans working with robots you know in the loop etc so that there's a lot going on in this space and i must also add it there was another hook here particularly work privilege of working with um keith ridgeway who's the uh, godfather of advanced manufacturing in the uk in my opinion so uh keith is uh chair of ms and it's a privilege to be working with keith in such a high profile program yeah had a huge impact on 
like the RTO landscape throughout the UK. Um, so yeah, fascinating stuff. And obviously, uh, we, we we like to share and bang, and bang ideas off of each other. I think the last thing I was looking at, how do we take manufacturing to the high street, which I thought was quite a, an interesting concept if the high street is um, yeah, absolutely decline in the future. But um, brilliant. And uh, thank you very much, Chris, for your time. Um, we're coming to the end of our, our slot. Um, but yeah, really fascinated to get you on board. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Martin. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Catch up soon. Thank and you take so care. much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. So for this tech spot in the Atlas podcast, we're joined by our colleague Armand Lemons. I hope I've said that right. Um, thank you for joining us, Armand. And yeah, if you'd like to give us a uh, a bit of a rundown because you work in uh, you're the manager for enterprise security at ATS Global. If you could give us a, a background on what security is, why it's important, that'd be great. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so, security, of course, is is currently uh, quite uh, in the news a lot, and it's interesting to see that a lot of people think security is actually a technical solution to a to to a problem, but there are many kinds of security dilemmas in, in modern organizations. Um, you can think about many more things than just the, the technological side of things. And this is why we always think that security is not just uh, a technical solution, but really something you have to approach from a holistic side. So we always talk about holistic security, literally talking about security from boardroom to shop floor. Um, if you think about it, or modern organizations are, are, are facing dilemmas like uh, data privacy, parameter security, policy management, operational security, just to name a few. And that's that goes very, so much further than just uh, talking about IT or OT security specifically. And this is also why we always start from a human perspective. And um, we always look at the human perspective of security. So basically you always start with who is who, that's the identity part, who is allowed to do what, so the authorization part, and then, of course, how does an organization stay in control of that? Because once you bring something in control, it's always so important to stay in control as well. Um, once you're on top of that, that's when you top it off with proper cybersecurity for network ap applications, hardware, and for instance, also threat detection for IT and OT as well, and proper monitoring and reporting. I think that really brings together uh, proper security. So both okay. from a, bringing it from a human perspective and the cybersecurity perspective. I think there's a, a lot to unpack in that. That's great. Uh, great introduction to security. I know when, um, whenever I've done these kind of security clearances for various different businesses that I've been involved with, um, there is that kind of focus on the, the cybersecurity aspect. But one of those, um, one of those uh, briefings that I had was very much uh, more focused on that holistic view and the the person who was running the session says asked us to think about what are those threats what are the threats do you believe there are to security within the business and then we all were coming out with a kind of you know hackers or um uh industrial espionage or something like this and uh, the guy turned around and said well no you guys are the biggest security threat absolutely um, 
you know, so that that kind of put everyone on their back foot going what yep. us? <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> and that's kind of what you're referring to there by starting with the user of the system and yep. individuals ultimately um and how they want to access that system and what kind of things we need to put in place but yeah it, it, people think cybersecurity is just about how you control passwords and things like this but it's it's a lot more holistic than that absolutely i think you know it's it, you can compare it with an example i always take um cybersecurity is often security of technical uh, of the te technological side so think about your house uh, you, uh, you bring in proper hardware to secure doors and windows you know put on proper locks so you really lock down everything really really well with top-notch technology that you have but you, you still don't know when something's going wrong in the house so it, it, it's that simple the people that are going into the house they can leave that window or they can leave that door open despite of that highly technological locks that you put on there and it doesn't help you anyways right it's still open yeah the people, the people have to be aware of security and security measurements to make security work properly I can mm. I can put that analogy one step forward. I think I'm thinking of like we we've got a cat, we've got a cat flap with a microchip cat, you know, and therefore only our cat can get it through the cat flap. And then as the sun comes out, we leave the door open, and the neighbors' cats all come in as I eat the food. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and this is actually interesting to look at it from from the security perspective. For instance, people often think about uh, uh, office security, right? And whenever you try to enter an office, you're being stopped by a security guy. But what if that guy is just off position for two minutes? You have to go through a little gate. Well, tailgating into a gate often is you know something that people don't really think about uh, you open up a door because you want uh, to be uh, chivalrous and you know mm. help somebody into the office because they're new there or some but nobody ever thinks twice when that happens that this could actually be somebody who has malicious intent so mm. i don't need to be a hacker sitting behind the screen in a dark room to gain access to vital information because once i'm on, on in the office i can just go to look through any documents or open laptops because people still don't lock laptops and all that terrible stuff that can happen just on your you know in your office and you can even take that to the operational part and this is often forgotten for companies think about especially in these times like the COVID-19 um, many of the big pharmaceutical companies of course they have uh, their, their intellectual property is is super important and they're creating vaccines and everything but you have, you know, test runs, small test runs that you have to do on the shop floor to create those vaccines, to, to, to make a test sample. You print out the recipe that is required for the test sample. You do the test, create the test sample, and you discard the paper that you just printed out. Good, you know, it doesn't go around on the shop floor. You put it in the paper bin. But if mm. you don't control actually what you do with that paper, that's also a high vulnerability because you're just yeah. leaking out IP through just the the, the, the waste bin. And yeah, and that's things really that people good, don't think about. Yeah, that's a really good example because also you can put it in your pocket and walk out. Yeah, and whether so you're doing that maliciously or not maliciously is is uh, and that, that was the point that the person was saying is that yeah you're our biggest threat because you might do something like that you might work out walk out with the. Uh, uh, nuclear secrets of a of a business um, or something like that, or as simple as you said, the recipe for the latest vaccine. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's very easy that because how do you determine the difference between what's appropriate and what's inappropriate behavior based on the fact that you got that? So often people think an air gap is more secure because of that. But that's an example where actually air gaps are less secure because as soon as you have to print something off or put something onto a, a pen drive, um, then then that information is mobile. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, so so you, you touched on a little bit about that uh, on the ITOT um, convergence and the, mm -hmm. the business requirement for more, if you like, um, um, digitized manufacturing environments and things like that. Can you talk a little bit more around that area? Yeah, sure. I think it's nice that you mentioned ITOT conversions because that is basically the, the, the biggest um well both a threat of course for a company if you look at it from a security perspective but also this is where the most opportunities are because uh, you, of course when a company can interchange uh, information throughout all the layers of a company that can uh, increase the speed of production and testing and everything uh, drastically so that's a great great thing and especially if you look at the in, in the current situation where a lot of people have to work from home so those data flows are ever increasing but the thing is, of course, that also creates a lot of attack surfaces, right? You create m much more vulnerabilities that uh, that you might not be aware of than when you're just working within the office and working on a single system. So the integration of IT and OT, uh, think about, for instance, your ERP system feeding into a mass system, feeding into a PLC or a SCADA, or even uh, as a RAM feeding into ERP and to CRM, that's horizontal and vertical integration of systems that create uh, a lot of benefits, but of course also much uh, many more uh, attack surfaces. So I think it's very important that also uh, when you start creating something like this, you have to think about the security by design standards. So your, your principle when once you create something has to be secure from the design where it used to be, of course, a lot that people do interesting projects and somewhere at the end think about security. Like, shouldn't we create like authorizations to separate a little bit things or, you know, that's that's what often happened. But if you want to do it correct in this type of world, we really need to be sure that you start with security from the get go. Those yeah. things have to be in tandem. Yeah. Otherwise, like you say, your your innovation outstrips your ability to secure that innovation. Yeah. Because yeah, innovation is, is, is creating, you know, IP and IP by definition, you don't want that on the street. Mm. So please start with, with proper security. <laughs> and the interesting thing, especially with the intellectual property side of it, and often what's seen, especially in new product introduction, uh, is that, uh, and we talked a little bit about PLM uh, recently, um, is that once the product's out in the market, almost the... Uh, the, the cat is out of the bag, if you like. So as soon as a new car is delivered into the market, a lot of the competitors are just, you know, stripping down that car to see what the uh, what 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 that car's been made up of or yep. whatever it is. So at that point, um, you know, slightly the the value of the intellectual property has been diminished. But whilst you're in that new product development phase, um, as you said, like with the vaccine uh, type of situation, um, that, that, that often is the uh, point that, um, yeah, there's most value or most risk to the business in that kind of investment. Sometimes once it's out in the market, 
you know, like I said, the, the, the information is there, or you can reverse engineer the information if required. Not in all cases, but some cases. And that's why things like yeah, licensing and, um, um, and, and other means of trying to control IP in the marketplace is more uh, is more done in, in in more of a commercial world uh, because the reality is once it's out in the market you can you can drive that kind of information yeah the interesting th thing there is, is actually that um, security can in this uh, uh, in this example be, really be a business driver instead of just an IT cost and mm -hmm. think about that because you're in, you know you said PLM so the product lifecycle management but um, you have to be you want to be first in the market with something new right because your IP gets diluted as you said that's absolutely right so you want to be first with something new you want to produce something with a high quality standard because that's when you sell of course the best stuff and um, once you have those two in control so your quality and um, your you know the, the, the fact that you can be first on the market mm. uh, that really integrates um, a few things that are very important there and around security as well um, so if you have proper security on these items uh, you're sure that that nobody discovers of course what you're working on and how you produce it mm. and I, I, that's also one of the weaknesses that a lot of companies don't see uh, your individual quality systems what if a hacker could compromise those? Because a hacker is not just a guy, for instance, that, you know, the, the current threat that everybody fears is ransomware. But that's really black and white, right? Because your system either work or they don't. But if I'm a competitor, I want to sneak into your systems and see if I can find your IP. And if I can't find it, I'm sure to try if I can, um, you know, compromise your production. So what if I start tweaking on your quality systems? So the products that you're producing, you don't even notice um, that there's something wrong with them because the quality system, system says they're okay. But you're actually, you know, changing the tolerances, for instance, on, on, on machines and everything. So that's that really is a threat that people are, uh, often don't don't uh, recognize as well, that you're, you're not just vulnerable um, through ransomware or anything like that. So it's something that holds your production, but also mm. something that can manipulate what is going on. Manipulation of use, what it's called. Yeah, and that's such a modern threat. We talk a lot on the podcast about the Internet of Things and all the wonderful things it can do. But it presents new threats that we didn't really have before. If everything can talk to everything else, you're right. Once you're in, then you have a gateway to things that previously would be offline or in another building or, yeah, completely unaccessible that all of a sudden are now on a single network, basically. Yep, absolutely. So that's why a few steps that we always take uh, into account are very important, I think, once you start thinking about security. Um, and that's really that it always starts with gaining the proper insight of your current status of security. And that can go very far, right? So think about your identity management. So who's who, of course, the access management, who's allowed to do what, your cyber vulnerabilities in both IT and OT, because they're no longer air-gapped. So make sure that you're, you know, you consider both as equal risks, um, but also the procedures involving security, right? How do people work with machines? How do people work together? Um, what's your paper flow throughout the company? How is your parameter security set up? Those are very important things to consider and to start evaluating what is your current, you know, status of security. 
to make sure that you really can make the, the right steps uh, and to pragmatically uh, keep increasing the quality of your security. Because I, I think, think that's I think. the most important part as well. Don't just start with a big project and an expensive mm -hmm. tool. Make sure that you get you know, an, an independent solution provider to help you to avoid expensive mistakes because security is big, but the knowledge is really still in a niche, right? So small changes can have serious, uh, can solve serious vulnerabilities already. So that's what I meant with being pragmatic about it. Start with solutions that work for your company at this moment in time. I think there's some great advice there. That's a great way to um, round off this uh, tech spot, I think. There. Thank you very much, Armand. I think that was uh, very useful and um, dived into a few practical uh, um, takeaways at the end there. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for your I interest think, in security. Yeah. It's, as always with these discussions, we've covered topics that I think we could do an entire tech spot on. So I'm sure we'll come back to you and we'll have a deep dive on a single area sometime in the future. Perfect. No problem. You can contact me always. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Armand. No problem. Thank you, guys. Okay. That's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Martin. Thank you, Alex. Uh, as always, I have a quick quote. This one, perhaps, uh, is looking hopefully towards the future as we ease lockdowns and things. But I was thinking back to the planes, wanted to find something apposite there. Uh, and this is from Edith Widder. And she says, exploration is the engine that drives innovation. Innovation drives economic growth. So let's all go exploring. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> mm, looking forward to being able to carry that out. More, more investment in innovation, the better. Absolutely. It's our hunger for uh, curiosity, that's for sure. Love it. All right, I will see you next week. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out 